This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's quote is from Jamila Jamil on Instagram um, in a long post about uh, the Kim Kardashian image that's really unsettling and that a lot of people wanted her to respond to. And she said, there's no point at screaming. There's no point in screaming at her. The smart thing to do is to protect yourself you have the power. You control every market. You choose what and who is trendy. Unfollow the people who tell you things that hurt your self-esteem. Don't let the debris of their damage spill out onto you. Unfollow people slash brands that don't make you feel powerful and happy and grateful for what you have. You are the boss and none of them are shit without you. The patriarchy, this is all in caps, the patriarchy wants us to focus on our weight instead of power, equality, and psychological freedom. Fuck anyone who encourages this. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard. With me, Samara Bay. Today's guest is Viv Groskop. She is a British journalist and author and comedian with a huge podcast in the UK called How to Own the Room, where she interviews room-owning women about their secrets to you know, living as themselves in public, as I see it. I wanted to have her on because, you know, she's really been living with this work as much as I have, if not more so, and for longer. And her book, How to Own the Room, which is amazing, was followed by this year's Lift As You Climb, which is about women and the art of ambition and explores, as you might guess from the title, what it is to amass power collectively and to help each other, to be helped, to ask for help to rise together. I mean, she is the sort of mentor that um, you don't tell, you just quietly get mentored by them from afar without them knowing until you have them on your podcast. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, oh, also, I should say for the careful listeners out there, you might remember her as being the woman that I quoted at the top of an episode a few weeks ago about learning how to say your job title without cringing. So, yes, indeed, I asked her how she answers that question. And I think that her answer is revealing. And one more thing. A few months ago now, when the pandemic had just hit England, she answered questions for about an hour on a YouTube show that is still up, and I'm going to link to it. It was called How to Cope with Uncertainty at Work. And I honestly think it is the single most useful resource on that subject. And... We ended up cutting our reference to it in this conversation, but I'm including a link in the show notes and I'm I'm shouting out about it here because the questions that she answered from viewers in real time and the framework that she offered for mental health, I think is just what we need to stay sane and to give ourselves permission (laughs) during this ongoingly wild time. I think it will make you feel better about yourself and I think it will make you feel better about humanity, which honestly you can say about Viv in general. Here she is. I'd love to start actually by asking you how you describe what you do to others or to yourself. How do I describe what I do to others or to myself? I like to ask this question, actually. I often ask this question of guests when I'm interviewing is, if you were introducing yourself to someone at a party, what would you say? And I always think, oh, I really hope no one ever asked me this question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess I just try and say something very simple, like I'm an author and a comedian, because those things are true. But I'm maybe not everybody's kind of stereotypical idea of what those things are, because I'm not really a stand-up comedian who does the circuit the whole time. I have been, but I haven't been for a few years, and that's a choice that I've made. I'm not saying I would never go back to that, but I'm not doing that at the moment. I tend to do my own comedy shows, write my own stuff, um, and dip in and out of the circuit. And then I write lots of very different kinds of books. So I've written five books, half of which are about performance and half of which are about really random esoteric forms of foreign literature. So yeah, author and comedian or writer or, you know, whatever anyone wants to call me. I'm I'm actually not that hung up on those labels anymore. I used to be, but I'm well, not. I hear you. And that's actually, I, I was, I was thinking about what I was really asking when I, when I wrote this question and I, I, I'm interested in this idea of how do you describe what you do rather than, you know, sort of what's your title? Because, of course, for many of us, our titles just don't contain, you know, the multitude of, like, what our actual experience is. And also, more to the point, what we love about what we do, you know? Because it seems like so much of your, um, from, from my experience as a listener of your podcast and a reader of your books, you're just so curious. Like, you're, you're a professional, curious person. Yes, I am a professional curious person. Next time I go to a party, someone says, what do you do? I'm going to say, I am a professional curious person. You know, but yeah, but, I'm a coach and you got that one for free. Yeah. Um, that is pretty much what I am. And I don't like the idea of having to define that or change that. And I guess 
originally by trade. I'm a journalist and a journalist, you know, from the days before the internet, you know, a journalist is a person who is professionally curious, who's trying to find stuff out, who's trying to find out the things that people are trying not to tell you or what's the real hidden subtext. And that is always what's going on for me, whether it's comedy or podcasting or how to own the room stuff, you know, when we talk about owning it and nailing it and smashing it all of what do we really mean what do those things really look like I love asking those kind of questions but very often when people ask me what I do the answer I will give will depend on what I think they're most going to be interested in because often the things I'm most interested in in what I do are like the smallest part so if you said to me like what's the thing you've done in the past year that you're most proud of Um, I wrote a radio play which had a big part for myself in it Mm -hmm. um, because I want to do more acting and that's really important to me. But that is not the thing that I'm most known for. The thing I would probably be most known for is having a very successful podcast that's had Hillary Clinton on it. But I think oh, it's I important know very to have well. your own. You have I your like listen to it. On, I, I listen to it. You know, I hung on every word of Hillary yeah, and Chelsea. Was, oh, they were a great pairing. It was a really interesting interview. I think I found you uh, through a recommendation, and um, I was. It was before this podcast launched, and I was. I had just parked. I was listening while I was driving and I parked at a grocery store and I just sat in the car and I kept listening and it was you and Sarah Hurwitz. Oh yeah, the Obama's speechwriter. Who mm-hmm. now has been a guest on my podcast and uh, and connected us, I should say. And I, I mean, looking back now, I'm like, I can't believe I got, I'm actually, you know, talking to you. But at the moment, I had this crazy, you know, sitting in a parking lot thinking I didn't know here I had pitched this podcast that's about how to use your voice, which is also the same thing as how to own the room, because how to use your voice isn't just like how to open your mouth and have sounds come out. It's how to do that in a way where you feel like you belong in the space that you're in. Yeah. You had to rise to the to the occasion, whatever the occasion is. And I thought like, a, you're such a genius, and I'm so I'm so thrilled to discover you and like listen to the you know backlog. And B, um, I, I realized in the moment that I'm like the American version of The Office, and didn't even realize like I was making <laughs> yeah, this pod well, side version. Yeah, it's really great, you know, this space of encouraging women, and particularly women, I think, or anyone who thinks of themselves as not an alpha, as in A L P H A. Um, Anyone who feels like they're held back in some way, you know, whether it's self-imposed or imposed by society, there's a whole movement of people exploring this space at the moment. There's an explosion of it. And I think it, it's interesting you mentioned Sarah Hurwitz because I really think it started with Michelle Obama's speaking and many of the things that we know her for, like, you know, when they go low, we go high. And I... Uh, lived in a house that was, I raised my girls in a house that was built by slaves. You know, all of those phrases, which Sarah Hurwitz had a hand in, she's very modest about her contribution to those speeches. And she'll say, you know, I was just there in the room when Michelle Obama came up with it. But I think those speeches and Michelle Obama's delivery of them and the way they were received by people, the way they went viral on YouTube, I think over the last 10 years, it's completely defined how people around the world think about how we can own our voices, own our story and do it in a way that is very new and fresh and doesn't have to conform to some kind of stereotype or something that we've seen before. And that is, 
hugely, I think, down to Michelle Obama and the mass appeal that she has, and also uh, down to the person who will never come on my podcast, but I would welcome at any moment with open arms, which is Oprah Winfrey. You know, I think Oprah was the first person to really promote that idea of women having a voice, people being able to change the narrative and talk about personal story rather than really, really big ideas that, you know, small ideas matter just as much as big ideas. And so those two, I think, over time, really change people's minds about what power looks like and what authority looks like. Speaking of personal stories, do you remember when you thought this is something I want to take up, this this owning the room? Um, it stemmed really from massive failure on my part <laughs> in that I stayed away from the things that I really wanted to do with my life for a long time because I was scared of them. And one of those things was stand-up comedy and acting and performing. And I became a writer because I was scared of those things. And it was kind of a second best for me. I mean, at the time, I didn't really realize that. I think as you get older, you start to realize the lies that you're telling yourself. I also heard you say somewhere that you that you grew up in a, you know, sort of quiet, um, I think you used the word mousy family that yeah. didn't define greatness yeah. that I way. did not I did not grow up in a showbiz family and my parents didn't go to university and were not urban, let's say. You know, I grew up in a rural community, long way from London. And I didn't know anybody who was doing the kind of things that I dreamed of doing. And I was I wasn't exactly discouraged by my parents, but somehow I got the idea that to do these things that I dreamed of, like performing or even writing actually was quite a tough gig to take on. These were sort of crazy things and you should get a proper job. Um, there's there's a whole like narrative in the British class system about getting a proper job, which I think is, you know, since the internet has been invented, it's slightly been exploded, which is very good. But growing up in the 70s and the 80s, I... I got this idea that I couldn't do lots of these crazy things. So it took me a long time to get to stand-up. And then I started doing stand-up in my mid-30s when I had three children and ended up writing a book called I Laughed, I Cried, How One Woman Took On Stand-Up and Almost Ruined Her Life, which was all about the open mic circuit, how difficult it is, how tough it is for women, how tough it was for me (laughs) and how tough I was on myself. And that book, it did okay, but it didn't do great. And I was kind of disappointed with how it was received because most people received this book as in, oh, who's this crazy woman who's taken up stand-up and isn't stand-up scary? Whereas Mm -hmm. for me, it was much more a story about finding your voice and doing things that you're scared of. So I began to think a lot about how can I open up that conversation? How can I make it more relevant to other people? How can I broaden it beyond stand-up? Because the lessons aren't really about stand-up comedy. They're about life and they're about confidence. And gradually out of that, How to Own the Room was born and started as a book and then became a podcast completely by accident. (laughs) What was the accident? Well, the accident was about two weeks before the book was due to come out. Um, there's this fantastic woman in the UK called Mary Portas, who is... I just bought her book because uh, of the okay. interview you guys did. Yeah, she's <gasps> so great. She's a kind of a... She's known as a retail entre- uh, entrepreneurial guru. So she used to have a show on TV called Mary Queen of Shops, where she would go around um, examining stores and telling them what they were doing wrong. Um, she's kind of like... She's kind of like the guys on Queer Eye, actually. Mm. You know, she's kind of 
of like Bobby, but for shops. And she's a big, you know, phenomenon over here. And I think oh, probably lots of people in the US know her too. But she got in touch with me because I'd interviewed her for other things and said, what can I do to help you with your book? And I, when How to Own the Room was about to come out, and I said, well, I could interview for the podcast that goes alongside the book, which didn't exist and I only really <laughs> just thought of. And she said, okay, yeah, great. And as soon as she said yes, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to do this now. So once I had her, I then got Nigella Lawson. Then I got Professor Mary Beard, who's a historian, TV historian over here who's very popular. And then it just grew from there. Mary Beard is like, what a dream. I, her book, um, uh, Women in Power, was a huge influence on me as well. Oh, great. I'm so glad. It's so great that these ideas travel because sometimes in the UK we think, oh, these are our people who belong to us and no one else <laughs> knows about them. But that's great. Yeah, Women in Power is an incredible book. Um, I mean, I found her because I'm a huge nerd around this topic, obviously. But um, but truly, for anyone listening, it is insanely short, like read in an afternoon short, and you will be armed with an understanding of patriarchal silencing from the Odyssey to Hillary Clinton to today. Actually, this is a real, I have a related question around this because I wonder if you have noticed anything about American versus British culture when it comes to this room owning, you know, dream. Yeah, the main thing I notice, and it's come up a few times on How to Own the Room, um, when I've, because uh, I've interviewed uh, probably maybe a quarter of the interviewees that I've done out of 50, 60 plus are American. It very often comes up that we don't have public speaking as something that we do in school as a matter of course. Where, uh, but the stereotype is Americans do. I don't know if that. I don't know if that's always always true. But it and it seems quite a weird stereotype in some ways because if you look at somebody like our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, you know he's clearly schooled in public speaking and he makes that a big part of what he does and a big part of his appeal. But he is from the private school system and the private school system over here is really the only place where you would be taught to debate, you would be taught public speaking formally. In the rest of the school system, you you don't really get that. Whereas people have said to me in the American system, you have loads of opportunities to present in front of the class. You're expected to be able to do that from a young age. I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems to be a stereotype that people have. Um, it also plays into the stereotype of the loud American. So the idea that, you know, Americans are confident. It's like, well, you know, 250 million people. Are you really sure that they are all exactly the same? Um, but there is that idea that, you know, Americans are confident and British not so much. But I've found that it's just a lot of these stereotypes are not true. I mean, I just interviewed the novelist Kylie Reid, the author of Such a Fun yeah. Age, and most of our conversation was about her being an introvert and how she owns her power in a very quiet way. And what I've always wanted to do with the podcast and the book is to explode some of these myths around the idea that you have to be loud, you have to be brash, you have to be charismatic, you have to own the room. You know, what ways are there of owning the room that are quietly strong, that are really using pauses or something that we haven't seen? And, you know, since I wrote it, this idea of the type of speaking that we don't recognize as powerful until we see it, that has become more and more of a phenomenon with people like Greta Thunberg 
Yeah. You know, 16-year-old, autistic, doesn't have well, Asperger's syndrome. She doesn't have English as her first language. One of the most popular speakers in the world. Malala, one of the most popular speakers in the world. Uh, you know, Megan, uh, she's another kind of really interesting quietly confident speaker so trying to explore Who was that those one? things and megan as in i never know what to call her now like the duchess of sussex oh as in princess <laughs> princess megan oh my god um, that yeah uh, that reference totally lost on me okay <laughs> you got it now yes yes yeah yes. so there's this whole new cohort of interesting young speakers who don't conform to this idea of well, you're American and so you must be this way or you're a 16-year-old woman so no one will want to listen to you. You know, all of those things are being exploded now and that's what's great about this moment. Some other examples of people who come to mind when uh, when I think about this too is uh, Emma Gonzalez, who was uh, hugely influential after that um, uh, the mass killing of, of high school students a few years ago and the movement that, that came out of that. You know, she was 18, 17, 18, and, you know, she took a mic and she held silence for the amount of time that the massacre had happened. And when she spoke, she said things like, we call BS, and it, you know, took the nation by storm. And what a great example of, you know, as well as AOC, obviously, in the in the U.S., and recently um, Killer Mike and Tamika Mallory, who have given voice to the Black Lives Matter uprising, each of them has reminded us leaders are people who rise to the moment. They're not people who've been trained or who or who have been handed a title. Yeah, totally. I'm interested in this idea too. I, I, I wanted to talk about, I, I could tell that you've been underlining a lot recently the different ways that we can own the room. And I think that's so you know, powerful because it's true. There is this sort of stereotype that many of us grew up with that the way to, um, you know, stand in front of a microphone and and uh, not miss your opportunity is to be the most, as you say, alpha version of ourselves, which I think is just some, you know, masculine trope that we men and women probably should be questioning. And it doesn't necessarily serve many of us in terms of trying to bring some authentic version of ourselves into those spaces. There's just a lot of ways to speak publicly successfully. One of the things I do is try and be very upfront about terms that I'm not comfortable with and public speaking is one of them. So I'll often be at an event or doing a podcast or or something like that and I'll say, you know, I hate the expression public speaking. This is not about public speaking. I don't know how it is in the US, but in the UK the term public speaking is very, it sounds very archaic. It's very off-putting to a lot of women, to a lot of younger people. It sounds like, you know, people in a debating chamber at the end of the 19th century all going, Mama, yes, Johnny, well done. <laughs> it's, it's just so horrific. Yeah, I think there's a new, there's going to be some new way to talk about this. I don't know what it is yet because... It's up to us to figure it out, isn't it? Which is why I use the expression owning the room, because I wanted it to be whatever that means to you and whatever the room is. You know, the room might be your kitchen where you're trying to get your kids to do something. The room might be a digital room where you're in your room, like in your bedroom on your own, but talking to lots of people. Or it could be an auditorium with 5,000 people. So... I broke that down into owning the room because that was what meant the most to me and meant I didn't have to say 
public speaking. But now I think people tend to talk a lot about communication. You know, people want to be better communicators. I mean, that also has a ring of something a little bit kind of linked in for me that I don't like. But in some ways, we have to use some of these terms so that we can be clear what we're talking about. So I'll very happily, you know, do an event if it's called like how to be a better public speaker, if that's what the event organizers want to call it. But the first thing I will say is, please don't want to be a better public speaker because no one wants that. But then you get into very sort of, and Oprah has owned this language very well uh, in the American context, perhaps more so than the British, where people are still wary of it. But it's really about being more you, be more yourself, be a better version of yourself. Authenticity, you know, you mentioned that word, that's what everybody wants. You know, everybody just wants to come across as the most natural version of themselves. And they want to be the same person as they are with their friends and their family when they're at their best, but in a professional context. So if you could just find a word that means that, Samara, then that's the word. You know what? I'm working on it. Um, But no, I mean, uh, this idea of scaling up our favorite selves into scarier and scarier contexts, you know, I think is at at the heart of it. Yeah. And feeling comfortable as yourself in settings which perhaps don't feel natural to you. That's what it's really about. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more and more specifics after this. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay, we're back with Viv Groskop. So we were talking before the break about bringing ourselves into scarier spaces, but... I mean, you know, one size doesn't fit all, of course, and a lot of listeners have more sort of conforming that they feel like they have to do, or maybe they do have to do, to fit into their work culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of this is awkward because there are always going to be norms of what sounds good, what looks good, and sometimes we're not very comfortable with these norms. I was Uh, talking on a a radio program yesterday about smiling and how important smiling is when you're on a podium or even, you know, on a Zoom call or anything where other people are looking at you. At the very least, a smile in the eyes, even when you're being serious, is so important. And when you're presenting material to people, you need to smile at them. And people, especially women, especially senior women, and a lot of senior men actually, resist this and say, I don't want to smile. I don't want to, you know, make nice. I don't want to sort of lessen my power by smiling. I want to be taken seriously. And people don't understand that just because you smile doesn't mean you won't be taken seriously. I, you know, Barack Obama, if you watch anything he does with the sound turned off, he is smiling the whole time at some point, even if it's just in his eyes. Even when he's talking, uh, he did a, I think it was a 60 second social media video the other day about Black Lives Matter, and it was ultra serious. It couldn't have been more serious. He absolutely has a smile in the eyes. And it's not a smile of happy. It's a smile of humanity. And finding things like that, that you can try and overturn people's preconceptions of, you know, if you're a woman who smiles, then therefore it means you're a pushover. Well, it doesn't. It means you're warm and you're here for people. To try and overturn some of those things, I think, is is really important. That's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about that, too, in terms of finding the thing that you care about, the passion behind caring, even if even if what you're talking about is really dark and heavy, you know? We're up there. We're not even up there. We're whatever, speaking into a Zoom. We're doing, we're, 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 we're grabbing the attention because there's something that turns us on. And we've got to sort of remember that we're bringing that because there's so much socialized stuff that m- many of us uh, carry that is about like, ooh, showing we care too much would be awkward for everybody or would be too revealing and vulnerable for myself. So I'm just going to kind of shut out the, the, as you say, the, the, the smile in my eyes. Yeah, well, that is a great fast track to connecting with an audience is to expose something, something that is actually of genuine risk to you. So you actually show vulnerability, you actually show authenticity, something you really care about, and to marry it with the concerns of that audience. I mean, clearly, you have to match it to your audience. You can't just be talking about what you care about with an audience who don't have the same concerns. That is where what you were saying, like meet people where they are, 
that's where that match happens. And I think it happens as much in your face and your body language and in your tone as it does in your content. And really great speakers, if you take their content and look at it, it actually doesn't have to be that good, but they lift it with the level of emotion and commitment that they bring to it. In fact, to reference your interview with Sarah Hurwitz, I remember when I was sitting in that, you know, Ralph's parking lot, that the thing I went back and listened to a second time around was when you said, what, to a speechwriter, what is more important, the words or the delivery? And she said both, but the delivery wins. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you imagine a speechwriter saying that. It can raise up, you know, mediocre content. Yeah, and it's true. I think people are really accepting this more and more that we're living in a digital age and so much content is about the connection that you make with people while you're on screen. And presence is so much more important than the actual words that you're saying because a lot of people read, as in read your body language, read your facial expression before they actually tune in to what you're saying. A lot of people are watching video clips with the sound turned off most of the time, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, public figures. And this idea that the speechwriter is king and somehow that is going to make a difference to how you're perceived. It's it's a very old-fashioned idea. I was I was at the um, conference of speechwriters in Washington, D.C. last year, and this guy gave a presentation which was based on artificial intelligence examining speeches. And it discovered that this was like using 2,000 different data methods, everything from how much you frown to how much you smile to the content to how, what your hair looks like to what the audience think of you. All of these data points, they feed it into the AI. And it came out as 11% of impact is on content. 89% is on things like passion, authenticity, trust, uh, how relaxed you look, which is so fascinating. And you could see from this 11%, you know, all of these little speechwriters' faces fell. Of right. what you're saying that my life's work is only going to add up to 11% of impact. And that's even if it's 100% of of my impact is only going to go up to 11%. But it's true. And there are loads of examples of really, really great uh, connectors with people whose content is actually quite empty when you write the words down. This is such a useful new data point too, because there's that classic uh, study that basically said the same thing, 7%, I think in that case was content. Yeah, or you mean the Moravian myth. The Moravian and the, and the, and the body line. But, you know, well, a few things. One that is so useful to remember is that these things aren't actually in competition unless they're telling different stories, right? Unless our body language and our tone of voice is actually saying something different than our content. But if our content is saying, you know, I'm thrilled to be here and everything else about us is also seeming like we're thrilled to be here, then, you know, these ac- these factors actually align in this lovely way where, you know, yeah. we get to trust that the content is actually just being supported by all yeah, the rest of us. exactly. And also... I do think that that 11% is really key. And why wouldn't you want to nail that completely? Why would you want to get, you know, 1% out of 11% in your content, but 100% in all other areas, you know? (laughs) And also without content, there is no speech. So of course you need to think about your content. But what I found with How to Own the Room and how people approach it and what questions they have around it 
is that people are overly obsessed with their content. They're, they always think, oh, if I can just write the perfect thing or I can just get this presentation down to however many words or if I can just get this down from 20 slides to 18. or the, You know, they think these things are the key and they're not. The key is the energy that you turn up with and the intent that you have. And when you first tell people about this, they say, well, that just sounds really lazy especially women, because women love to do too much work, you know, because they think that's the way to get an A, but we are not at school anymore and it is not the way to get an A in real life. (laughs) And so all of my work is trying to convince people that it's more about the sizzle than the composition of the sausage. Because everyone's thinking, oh, but if my sausage has like 13% fat and 7% pork and it's a sprinkling chorizo. (laughs) No, no, no. It's the sizzle that sells the sausage. I've forgotten which company does this, if it's Apple or Google or, but there's some company where everything that is written down for people's consumption at certain kind of event, like a conference or a presentation, it has to be sent to them in advance and everybody has to agree to read it. And then after that, everybody has to leave the materials alone and everybody has to speak from the heart. And that's exactly how it should be. Because if you are disrespecting your audience by saying what I have written down here or what I have learned or these words that have been crafted, they are so important. Well, so, you know, write a book. a, A spoken communication is a connection with an audience. It's almost a spiritual thing. I want to I get very specific about one of the points in How to Own the Room, which you call um, happy high status. Happy high status. Yes. I'm so sorry. Happy the, high status. An American version. Happy no, no, high status. Happy high status. <laughs> well, we haven't yeah. discussed dialect work, but that's separate. Happy uh, high status. Happy high status. Yeah. You can even do the like the Southern California version <laughs> if you really want to like happy sound high like status. Oh, <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, some vocal fry. For your own experience, <laughs> perhaps, in in stand-up. Um but also because, as I know, is a big section of your book. Can you talk to us about what happy high status uh, means? Oh, very nice British accent. So happy high status is a concept that I came across that derives from improv comedy. And I first became obsessed with it because early on when I was doing stand-up and I was quite new and I had my five minutes, I had a promoter come up and say to me, at a competition where I didn't go through to the next round, she came up to me and said, you're really good and you can do this and you could have gone through, but you need to play higher status. And at the time, I had no idea what she was talking about. And I kind of asked her to explain, but she couldn't really explain it. So I went away and kind of researched more about what that means and how it would look like on me. And I became obsessed with this idea of status. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of stuff in improv. And in improv, one of the hallmarks of creating a scene that's going to be funny is about playing around with status. And characters who are very high status get taken down a peg. Characters who are low status end up becoming the king. Like, it's all very sort of basic status play. I mean, it's Shakespeare, right? Yeah, well, it's pretty much like every single drama you've ever seen and every single bit of comedy you've ever seen is that you immediately see the status of all of the different characters. So you could even think of something like Friends you know, who are the high status characters in Friends? Um, 
I would say, you know, Joey is trying to play really high status, but actually he's quite low status. Um, Chandler thinks that he's low status, but he's actually high status. Uh, Ross is always playing high status because he knows everything. You know, it gives people an idea of what these things mean. And we have them amongst our friends and we're constantly up and down in, in the pecking order. And I came to this idea of happy high status um, through improv because one thing you can't really play in improv or in comedy because it's not going to be funny is happy high status, which is really that relaxed charisma of somebody like Barack Obama or Michelle Obama, George Clooney. Um, a lot of actors uh, would would have this quality and female uh, actors as well. Um, because we're not allowed to use the word actresses anymore or they don't seem to like it anymore. Um, it's not a gender I thing. I mean, look, everyone's it's, unemployed at the moment. So like, who, yeah, you so, know, yeah, their, their status is a little lower. You know? <laughs> um, it's, it's really people who are really comfortable and at ease in their own skin. And I introduced this idea into How to Own the Room to try and encourage every person to think about what does your happy high status look like? And it doesn't mean that you have to become the president or you have to become CEO of your company. It's not about a business card. It's about who are you being when you're the most elevated version of yourself, when you're not trying to lord it over everyone or show that you're in charge, but you're also not pandering to anyone or sucking up to every anyone. You're just being the best version of yourself that you can be. And if you can channel that energy in front of a crowd, a small crowd or a large crowd, it's incredibly powerful because it means if somebody shouts like, get off, you're rubbish, I want my money back, <laughs> then your happy high status will just laugh and say, okay, I'll see you afterwards. I've got 10 pounds ready for you now. And then you just move on to the next thing. And similarly, somebody can say to you, oh my God, I think you're amazing. I'm going to give you five-star review. You're not like, oh, wow. Yeah, you really get me. There are other people who don't get me. <laughs> like You're just like, oh, thanks. It's, you know, being able to take criticism and praise equally, being able to sit with negativity and rejection and just respect it and let it be in its own space. It's not about being able, able to bring some kind of enforced joy. It's not about like pushing anything on anyone, mm. but it's leaving the space open for something joyous or something interesting or something surprising. That is, that's what happy high status is really designed for. Do you practice it? You? Oh my God, all of the time. I mean, that's my dream in life is... Well, sometimes when I'm questioning myself or I think I've behaved badly or I'm tempted to behave badly in reacting to something, I'll just think, Viv, is this happy high status? <laughs> is really, is this, because it's really about not being petty, not being petty, not accumulating resentments, not blaming other people for things. It's not about kind of just accepting everything and um, not caring about injustices <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, and kind of just, it is a bit like when they go low, we go high. But it's not about thinking, well, anyone can just do anything. You, you can have your views about what counts as injustice and what counts as things that you won't tolerate. But it's about not being triggered by things that are going to put you off your game. It feels very zen. Yeah, it's totally zen. It's, it's Buddhism. The idea of not grasping. Yeah. Of sort of letting the winds, but still having a center. Yeah. 
Exactly. It's a showbiz version of Buddhism. <laughs> That's the new public speaking. <laughs> yeah. All packaged up for you guys. Um, okay, before we take a break and find out who you brought in for us, I would love to just touch on, um, you know, the fact that we're in a pandemic. I'd love to speak for a moment about au revoir tristesse, which for listeners means... Um, Goodbye, Sadness or Melancholy, your latest book. Oh, I'm very, very um, pleased that you have mentioned this. It's, this is my new book. It's so, I mean, and I know that you're, look, some things we know about you. You have a background in French language or, and or literature. Yeah, both. And Russian. Yeah, French and Russian, yeah. I mean, there's such, you're such a language person. I love that. I mean, I, I, I wonder, I, want, I have all kinds of questions for a different podcast about how English works for you compared to other languages, like what, the, what, it is, what communication is in English. But specifically for this book that just came out, uh, which is about le bien-être, this idea of well-being that isn't the same as this American concept of, as you call it, I have this great quote of yours that says, um, le bien-être, this sort of French concept uh, um, is, quote, so much sexier and more exciting than the mealy-mouthed, goody-goody, goop-esque well-being. And it's about the good life. Yeah, you don't get the French making candles called My Vagina Smells <laughs> Like This. What a missed opportunity. That's, they're a bit more subtle. I wonder what you're thinking about right now in terms of this feeling of the good life and squaring it with, you know, obviously this sort of... Um, house arrest that we're all in. Yeah, this has been a really strange experience because this book uh, is called Au revoir tristesse, Lessons in Happiness from French Literature. And it's a kind of love letter to ourselves as readers. So what are the books that we connect with from the classics, whether it's Proust or François Sagan or Camus? Uh, if you know those people, this is a chance to revisit them. If you've wanted to discover them but never quite known how this is a kind of idiot's guide um i am the idiot um, <laughs> but the it was really born years ago like i've been writing this book for years and it's a companion piece to my book about russian writers which is called the anna karenin effects life lessons from russian literature um it was really examining, you know, what lessons can we take from other cultures about what makes us happy about what makes us fall in love about what makes us feel good in our bodies what is memory what are the philosophies that we're carrying through our lives and how are the french so good at that are they really that mm. good at that why do we think that you know why do i think i would be a better sexier better looking woman <laughs> and have lots of lovers if i was french <laughs> why do i think that it's examining all of that and when i knew that the book was going to be coming out now uh, my heart sank because I just thought, you know, how can I be celebrating this kind of joie de vivre uh, and this wonderful sort of French romantic take on life at this horrible, really difficult and uncertain time. But the way that it has been embraced by people and the way people have received it has just been extraordinary because people have said, do you know what, this is exactly what I need to read now is what Flaubert was saying about Madame Bovary in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> people in the UK saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to get to France for at least another six months because we're in lockdown. So I really want to read about French poetry. It's ended up being something that is quite comforting and reassuring to people at a time when 
globalization has kind of come under question, what I'm trying to do in the book is say, you know, what are the things that bring us closer together? What are the ideas that we all share? And what is it that we all have in our hearts that is the same? And so I I've kind of feel really attached to this book that it has worked for this moment after all, rather than feeling completely irrelevant, which is every writer's idea of a nightmare. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and find out who you brought in for us. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Okay, Viv. I mean, I love that you're here. Um, Who have you brought in for us? I have brought into the room (laughs) Tig Nataro. I love it. Yes. How did you decide on Tig? She is a force of nature. So for people who don't know who Tig Nataro is, she is a stand-up comedian who shot to fame when she went on stage the same day that she had had a cancer diagnosis. And she got on stage and said, I haven't prepared anything tonight. This is what I want to talk about. And it was recorded by Louis C.K., um, who was later to become controversial for many yes. reasons. Problematic. Um, but, yes, problematic mm-hmm. reasons. So ignore that part of the story, but I wanted to explain. <laughs> um, but he then, he was recording this because she wasn't recording it for herself. He was recording this improvised set that was off the back of her cancer diagnosis. And he released it on his social media channels and it went viral. So she had before then, you know, been a very successful stand-up comedian on the circuit. Uh, She had a fantastic reputation 
But this sent her global. So I think probably the year after that, I saw her in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, for the first time. And I then saw her later on at a big show in London. And she is just the most phenomenal live performer. She appears to improvise absolutely everything that she does. Of course she doesn't because no professional stand-up mm-hmm. is really improvising. They really have got mastery of what they're doing. Uh, she just plays a room like a genius and it all seems as if it's just coming from this place of totally childish playfulness. Um, but at the same time, is very intelligent and quirky and just everything about her is just joyous. And then I've watched her career. Uh, you know, she was in this uh, fantastic film that I absolutely love and I really recommend to listeners of this podcast called In a World. Do you know oh, In yes, a World? Of yeah, course. Of course. And we're gonna have Lake Bell on voiceover. to talk about yeah. sexy baby so, voice. Uh Tig Notaro plays a sound engineer in in a world which is all about the voiceover industry. Tig is also a member and early investor in this very special women's co-working space in Hollywood that my podcast producer Kat and I actually met each other in and first started talking about this podcast. So it is a particularly sweet choice for us personally. And hi, Tig. Uh, Okay, here's the clip. When I was first dating my wife and I told her, I'm originally from Mississippi. And thank you, one person. We are an hour, less than an hour from Mississippi. And I get one woo. How dare you? So when I told my wife when we were dating that I was originally from Mississippi, she said, when I think of people from Mississippi, I picture them barefoot. And I said, well, thank you. Uh, But my family is actually civilized. They have jobs. They live indoors. They wear shoes. I love her. Right, I mean that's also that's a whole setup for a story where when she when the when the wife finally meets the family, they have all happened to have just taken off their shoes. Of course, yeah. I mean, she's so good. You can hear even from that very short clip that she is all about using pauses, and she listens harder to an audience than I've ever seen anybody listen, and that is one of the hallmarks of really great speaking and great performance is. Are you listening to them and how they're responding as hard as you're trying for them? Because you need to actually listen to them more than you need to think about yourself. Because you're not there for yourself, you're there for them. So she's, you can hear her kind of like milking every single millisecond of pause and of reaction and being ready to go with it if she needs to. This idea of trusting that you can be actually, actually present, actually there, actually in the middle of your thoughts is so scary. But it, I mean, and it's improv. I mean, that's why people who aren't necessarily going to become performers in their life do improv. This idea of being able to live in the moment and have the, the fear of, uh, of I, I might have to pivot and turn that fear into an opportunity. I, I, will, I will inevitably pivot because I'm getting information. I'm a human. I'm getting information. The question is, do I acknowledge it or don't I? Yeah. And that's the one thing that people are really terrified of in the context of performance or presenting of any kind is, is something going to happen that I didn't plan? (laughs) And generally, something's always going to happen that you didn't plan. (laughs) So you have to plan 
for the lack of plan. It makes me think of something I've heard you discuss, which is the idea of the social editor. Oh, yeah. I love so talking about social editor. Oh, good. <laughs> would you? Would you? <laughs> yeah, social editor is an idea that also comes from stand-up comedy and improv, a bit like happy high status. Happy high status. Happy high status. Oh my God, your accent is and, so amazing. It's <laughs> because I watched the Californians on SNL. That's right. That's right. That's you right. It's Kristen Wiig. What yeah. are you doing here? Um, <laughs> by the way, by the way, we don't take the 405 to the 101 anymore <laughs> oh, at all. Favorite. You take the 405. Um, yeah. So social editor is the thing that kicks in in our lives and in our censoring of ourselves when we're about seven or eight years old. So before seven or eight years old, we will very happily turn to our parents and say in a loud voice, why is that woman so fat? You know, everybody who's had a child will know this. You know, children tell, tell the truth about things and, and they don't understand social nicety. You know, they have to be schooled in it. And you know, very intelligent children pick up on this very young. Children who are a little bit more rebellious take a while to understand it. But once we get to age seven or eight, the social editor is really in control. So we know the things that we're not allowed to say that are rude, that are uncomfortable. A social editor is also kind of about, you know, not committing crimes. It's about like not thinking, oh, it's totally okay to go out naked which, you know, when you're a child, you think it's totally okay to go out naked. But, you know, then you get to a certain age and you want to cover up. So the important thing for public speaking and finding your voice is learning to know when there's too much social editor in your life. So you're censoring yourself from saying things that might be useful or confronting or provocative, but in a good way and not holding yourself back and censoring yourself but I, I'm very careful in the way that I talk about this because obviously we don't want people just going into any space and saying, well, I hate you and you're terrible. And, you know, social editor is not about just spilling everything that's in your gut, but it's about questioning, especially for women, you know, am I not saying that because I don't want people to think I'm nice? Am I not saying that because I don't want people to think that I'm a bitch or that I'm bossy? You know, social editor tells us a lot of things to do with gender, class, race, about what sort of person we should be. And some of them are useful because they stop us from walking around naked and murdering people, which is good. But some of them are bad because they make women think, um, I mustn't have gray hair because it's going to make me look old. Or I mustn't speak up in this meeting because I'm going to sound strident. It's all of those stereotypes. It's it's about sort of navigating the dif dis difference between... I'm going to respect the social editor and get on as best I can in this society as a good citizen, but I'm not going to let myself be squashed by stereotypes. What I love about this too, and we should end on this note, but what I love about this too is that it actually connects all the other, all the other major points that you were talking about. Because the idea that a kid doesn't have the editor yet, but also that a kid inevitably has happy high status, what we're saying is... That a lot of the the stuff that we've picked up that's gotten in our way, the bad version of the editor, is stopping us from having happy high status. Exactly. Exactly. It's about being 
I don't know how to say this, but like an adult version of your best self as a child, if that's possible. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And actually, I had a Toni Morrison quote from one of your newsletters, which I now really, really want to end this on. If, if people will forgive me for quoting, you know, Toni Morrison with this one of her um, really verbose and stunning things. I know what you're going to say, and it's very apt for this. Yeah. There is nothing, she says, believe me, more satisfying, more gratifying than true adulthood. The adulthood that is the span of life before you. The process of becoming one is not inevitable. Its achievement is a difficult beauty, an intensely hard-won glory, which commercial forces and cultural vapidity should not be permitted to deprive you of. Yeah, be your own version of what you think an adult should look like and sound like. And only you get to decide what that is. I have chills. Thank Boom. you. Mic Thank drop. you, Viv. Take the tarot <laughs> tribute all round. <laughs> Take it all off. <laughs> um, thanks, Viv. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you to Viv Groska for joining me. You can find out more about her in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. I have started doing IG Lives every Thursday. So join me tomorrow at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram. It's Q&A style, so feel free to ask me anything on the spot. I dare you. Or I should say, if you were more of a, you know, ruminate over it type, Please send me DMs at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram or submit through the website and let me know what is going on with your voice for our upcoming mailbag episode. If you've been sitting on a question or, you know, not sure what you're really asking, DM me. Do it. The messier, the better. I will help you if I can. Thank you to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio and all of you. We are recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe. And you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.